The uh, first retreat I did, just a second. This thing's getting to be more difficult than following the breath. This is the uh, perfect setup for my talk tonight, since my talk tonight is about difficulty. (laughs) I couldn't ask for a a better preamble. The first retreat I did was a uh, Zen retreat, and I had read quite a bit about Buddhism, but hadn't done much sitting, and... At the end of the retreat, I swore, swore I would never meditate again. <laughs> it was horrible. It was one of the most painful experiences of my life. And at the same time, um, I touched something real, I think, for the first time in my life. I think I realized this bubble that I'd been living in, this, this bubble of avoidance, and even though it was painful and difficult, it, 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 it allowed me to touch something real. And I, I want to point out, actually, this became the theme of uh, the beginning years of my practice. The beginning years of my practice were filled with actually quite a bit of challenge, quite a bit of physical challenge and emotional challenge. Actually, when I think about it, it wasn't only the first few years. Then I got ordained as a, a, a Zen monk, and, um, and the difficulties continued, but on a different level. <laughs> so I wish I could say it was only the first few years. But when I reflect back on it, and after those uh, years uh, matured, and some of the uh, preliminary difficulties started to settle, I realized how important those difficulties actually were in the, in the end. And in particular, moving through those difficulties and learning how to skillfully navigate them. And when I learned how to skillfully navigate them, I began to realize um, the gateway that they were towards a deeper understanding of this path. And, And really, that's what I want to speak to you about tonight, is how difficulty, how challenge really can be a very important component uh, and a foundation for the unfolding of this path. And I'll be sharing with you some reflections around the five hindrances to help, uh, I hope, uh, deepen uh, your understanding of this. The five hindrances, uh, pancha, nivarana. Pancha is, is five. Nivarana uh, is sometimes translated as obstacle. It can mean obstacle or obscuration or that which covers those things in your in your practice that feels like you're hitting a wall in some kind of manner and in the numerical discourses uh, the buddha 
I think, defines them in a very interesting way. He says, bhikkhus, or you could say practitioners, there are these five obstacles, five hindrances that overwhelm awareness and weaken wisdom. What are these five? They are sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and worry and doubt. I find this a, a very helpful definition of, of what the hindrances do. There's a quality of overwhelming awareness, overwhelming our ability to be with what's going on. And when I cannot be aware any longer, of course wisdom will be weakened, it will be clouded. And I'm sure you've noticed these. <laughs> Right, the first one, the craving, maybe something like you noticed those, those planning thoughts arise, planning the future of your life after retreat already, and we're only in the first week. Or maybe it was the chocolate cake a few nights ago <laughs> that seems to keep on lingering. Or the ill will, the aversion towards the person that's walking too slow or the person that's walking too fast or the person who's too loud, or the person who's too quiet, or that sight, or that sound, that pushing away, or the sleepiness and the bobbing in your sitting meditation, or the restlessness towards the end of the sit when you're just hoping the bell's going to ring, or the doubt, the doubt of what in the world does paying attention to the sensations on the bottom of my feet have to do with awakening? <laughs> and it's, in particular, it's this quality of being lost. It's, 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 that's one of the defining characteristics of, of, this hindrance, of these hindrances, being lost in such states in which they've overwhelmed awareness. Have you experienced these? Has anyone experienced this? <laughs> I think the better question was, is, has anyone not experienced these? <laughs> That's where we need concern, is if you haven't realized that you're I- I- experiencing these, then your awareness probably has been severely overwhelmed. <laughs> so tonight I want to use a frame uh, to situate this exploration, these, these reflections kind of using some poetic language that you might find helpful and might not. So you decide if it's helpful or not. And it's a poem by W.S. Merwin called A River of Bees, which when read, I think you get a sense of a journey, kind of like uh, the the way that that Sally was introducing us to this these images of journey in her, her talk a few nights ago. And this poem is, is really about a dream that he's having. And in this dream, it, you get this feeling that he's, he's searching how to navigate this activity that all of us are involved in, this activity of living and dying. And in the dream, he's going from room to room, looking for the answer, searching for the answer. And then at the end of the poem, he comes to this room. He comes to the, this door at this room. And these are the last lines of the poem. He says, on the door, on the door it says what to do to survive. But we were not born to survive. 
only to live. On the door it says what to do to survive, but we were not born to survive, only to live. I find those powerful words on a few different levels. Just the obvious level, you weren't born to survive. You're going to die. This process is not about surviving. We're here only to live. And to me, I think this speaks to this practice and also to the five hindrances in a way. Of course, I, I think the frame of survival can be very um, inspiring and compelling. But I'm using this word in a, a very particular way, given the frame of this poem. Because I, I find with this practice, it, it's, a, it's a chance to step out of mere survival. And what I notice in my mind is when the hindrances are at play, when they're strong and have force, I feel like I'm lost. I'm lost in this mere survival. And I've forgotten how to simply live and how to truly live. So I'm, I'm inviting uh, this, this frame for an exploration of these five hindrances of, of when you uh, can move through the five hindrances, it's moving through this, this mode of mere survival and into authentically living. It's getting to a point of seeing the challenge that you're facing on this retreat as it may be at first hindrances, but then coming to see how they're actually gateways to deepening your path, to deepening your wisdom, and to bringing you closer to liberation. So I want to go back to this list, this list of five. Sometimes when I come across one of these many lists of the Buddha, what I sometimes like to reflect on is what's not on the list. Because I actually find it quite interesting what's not on the list. Um, so, a difficulty with a family member or a friend is not on the list. Your fellow yogi or the food that one afternoon or morning, or the schedule or the teachers, your back pain, the discomfort when you're sitting, it ain't on the list. And, and the one thing that I wanted to put on the list was the, the trucker that cut me off the other day. <laughs> I swear that he should have been on the list. <laughs> but he's not. But I want to put him there. Or my favorite politician that I don't like, or that world leader. I mean, there's a lot of world leaders right now that I feel like need to be on the list. But they're not. The Buddha's pointed out is that that's not the essential problem. The essential problem are states of mind, are habits of mind. That's the root that we're looking at. That's the root that we're examining. Because that's the real challenge. It's the real challenge that leads to liberation. And if only, right, if only these hindrances arose 
in your meditation. Like if they only arose in my meditation, my life would be so great. <laughs> but it's not the case. I, I, I'm sure you see how they rule your life at times. They, they bring suffering into our lives. And not only that, especially the first two, if we generalize them in terms of uh, them being a, a craving and aversion, these, these are creating the suffering in the world that we live in. It's, they're fueling the wars and the oppression that's going on right now as we're sitting in this hall. And I want to point that out to point out that the work you're doing here is important work not only for yourself, but the world that you live in. Because they're playing out in your own life and they're playing out in the world. And when I skillfully navigate them, then there's, that, there's, there's less hindrances in this world. And there's more of an opportunity for at least one more human being to respond rather than to react to such states of mind. The other reason I want to point this out is because I feel that when the, the Buddha is sharing with us this path, there is an underlying narrative that I find in the early discourses that this is not just about my liberation, it's a much broader liberation. And, and sometimes you get this language from him that shows that he is attempting to undermine really a, a kind of systematic oppression that was going on in his society at that time the way that Brahmins were held and that other people were oppressed. And trying to redefine, re-understand what nobility truly is. And I feel like this was a response, a response to a kind of systematic oppression. For example, you find this in uh, the Dhammapada, such a, a, a popular... Um, part of the Pali discourses where there's a, a chapter in the Dhammapada entitled Brahmins and within that, the, that chapter you see him redefining what a Brahmin is trying to undermine the kind of system that was uh, surrounding him for example one stanza he says not by matted hair not by clan, not by birth, does one become a Brahmin. The one in whom there is truth and dharma is the one who is pure, is the one who is a Brahmin. Not by matted hair, not by clan, not by birth, does one become a Brahmin. The one in whom there is truth and dharma is the one who is pure, the one who is a Brahmin. Situating nobility on spiritual maturity rather than merely on birth. I find this to be beautiful and powerful, this undermining. And, and when I hear that, I realize in some ways when you come on retreat, it's a kind of um, community service. It's a kind of activism when we get this sense.
So how do you navigate these challenges that I'm sure you've already uh, come to notice in your practice? How do you transform them so they no longer are a hindrance but end up being a gateway to your liberation? And what comes to mind is a, a, a poem by Lucille Clifton. It's a fantastic title of a poem. It's called A Poem Beginning and No and Ending in Yes. And it's a, a poem uh, in honor, in honor of a, a, a person by the name of Hector Peterson. Hector Peterson was the, the first person to have been killed in the Soweto uprising in 1976 in South Africa, 13 years old. And it really was in honor of him, and I think in general in, in, in honor of that, that uprising, which that uprising in 1976 was uh, crucial in the anti-apartheid movement. It's actually what galvanized um, a lot of the momentum for that movement. So important that even today it's a national holiday in South Africa on June 16th. And it's a poem that, that what you get to see is, yes, it's the acknowledgement of tragedy, but a way of holding tragedy that allows it to move forward and see the light that sprang forth from that challenge, from that difficulty, and also the liberation that came from that, the undermining of apartheid. How do you move through these hindrances in a way that you might begin with a no, but end with a yes, where you move from mere survival into uh, authentically living. It's so simple. It, it, it all hinges around how you relate to them. It's, it's really exactly what Carol was talking about last night. I appreciated last night the clarity of the language that, that she was using. This comes down to simply accurately recognizing what's going on right now. Just that. Recognizing accurately. And there, there, there can be many ways to approach the hindrances, but this is the, the, the one way that I want to uh, flesh out a bit, to explore a little bit about what we've been sharing with you again and again, this, this recognizing accurately what's going on and the power of just that. So before uh, getting into that more deeply, I do want to go over a little bit about ways um, not to approach the hindrances, which I just want to mention I have had so much experience with. <laughs> so hopefully it'll be helpful, my uh, unskillfulness. So one of the ways I was, I don't know if I was taught this, this is the way I, I understood it when I was practicing in Asia, in Nepal, in Burma. I would go in and I'd report some hindrance. And this one teacher would say, dispel them, dispel them at once, abandon them. <laughs> so I'd go back to my meditation. And dispelling and abandoning, when I hear those words, I think, get rid of. <laughs> These should not be happening. So I would do my best, if they were to come up, is just to stick as hard as I could to the breath or to sensation. Um, which I want to say did not work, <laughs> in case you haven't tried it. 
and, and then it would spiral out from there. It wasn't only that I would try to desperately hold on to the breath. Then uh, when they started to crop up even more, then I realized that for my mind, it was an indication that there was something wrong with me or I was doing something wrong. And so I had a whole story and belief system around what hindrances were and now a whole ineffective system for dealing with them. I don't recommend it. <laughs> and we'll come back to this, this word abandon because abandoning the hindrances is an important aspect of it. But what I realized is I was un- misunderstanding that word and I was misunderstanding my role in relationship to the hindrances. And this was also really important that I needed to work through, which is that because a hindrance is arising, it has actually has nothing to do with me and who I am or some judgment about me. It's just what happens when you're a human being. And what I needed to counteract that, which I'll mention again, is just this quality of self-compassion. Wow, this is difficult. And to sometimes keep it that simple. When a hindrance arises, what does that mean at times when I'm at that first stage of, of the no? This is difficult. Ouch. I care about myself. Rather than something's wrong with me. So let's, let's go to the Satipatthana Sutta to get a little more information about how to navigate these, these five hindrances. As the Buddha says in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, and how does a bhikkhu and how does a practitioner abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the five hindrances? Here, there being sensual desire in them, or it could be any of the five hindrances, here there being ill will or sloth and torpor or doubt. A practitioner understands there is one of these hindrances in me. I actually just want to stop right here because I think there's a lot just in this part of the Satipatthana Sutta. What is it to understand that there is a hindrance here, a hindrance that's arising. And it goes back to this, uh, exactly what, what uh, Carol was talking about last night, which, which was the importance of actually recognizing that it's happening. Not some vague sense that there's a difficulty in your practice, but noticing that particular mind state. Oh, this is, this is ill will. Oh, this is actually craving. Wow, interesting. This is doubt. And at times it's not so easy. There's a story, I think, in the numerical discourses about this, where the Venerable Anuruddha goes to uh, the Venerable Sariputta to ask some advice about his practice. And, and the Venerable Anuruddha says something to Sariputta like, You know, I don't get it. I have these actually really remarkable qualities that have arisen as a result of my concentration practice. I have a tremendous amount of energy that's coursing through my practice as well as strong mindfulness. But I don't get it. My mind isn't free yet. It isn't completely free. What's up with this? 
And Sariputta says, well, actually what's going on is that, um, that sense of how great uh, your, your abilities are from your concentration practice, that's actually conceit. <laughs> and all that energy and what you think is strong mindfulness is actually restlessness. You're not seeing it clearly. And this whole thing about um, you're concerned about not being completely um, free, we call that worry. So really fascinating. Here he is, he's describing his practice, but he's not seeing these, these states of mind that are actually percolating through his practice that are hindering his practice. And what's needed? He just sim- sim- simply needs to recognize that that's what's going on as in an exper- experience. Oh, interesting. This is the comparing mind. This is conceit. This, this, is, this is what uh, restless is like. Oh, restlessness is happening. Restlessness feels like this. It's that recognition. I remember this for myself of having quite a long time of seeing patterns of thought that would arise in my meditation and I could label them as thinking or even remembering. But it took me a while to get to a point of really seeing, oh, actually the theme here, this is anger. Oh, interesting. I I don't have a clear contact with this emotion in my life yet. This is why I'm missing it. And that was the turning piece of just seeing, oh, this is aversion. There was the clarity. There there was the accuracy in recognition. And that's what really was needed is just that, that scene. And sometimes just that is enough. With the recognition and the seeing, the hindrances dissipate. They dissipate not in the sense that they go away, but the awareness is no longer overwhelmed. Remember, that's the way the Buddha is defining it. There's clarity there in that moment. It's no longer hindering, then there's clarity which is leading to my liberation. What if they persist? Have you noticed how these can persist? Boy, they can persist so much. There's a good chance you might experience them on every day of your retreat here. How to navigate them, how to actually clearly see them. Just this first part of the, 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 the part of the Satipatthana Sutta that I'm sharing with you. To see that, oh, this is ill will. To understand that this is craving. The first thing I need to to come back to when I'm experiencing persistent challenge, especially on retreat, is um, you could say the sacredness of of that challenge. And I'd like to share with you a poem that I I feel expresses this, and it's from Pesha Gertler, and it's entitled The Healing Time. She begins... Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. Actually, I just want to repeat that first line because I I love that first line. Finally, I'm on my way to yes. Finally, I've come on retreat. Finally, I've taken the time to be here for a month or two months. 
Finally, I'm on my way to yes, and I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again. Where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life, all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. The first thing I need to remember when I'm dealing with a persistent difficulty is that it's holy, it's sacred. And it's the first thing I need to remember because it's the first thing I forget. These challenges, these hindrances that you are facing are actually holy because it gives the opportunity for learning a new relationship. And when there's that new relationship of recognizing accurately, it becomes the gateway to liberation. And I just want to invite you right now to, to reflect on this, that, that the difficulties in your life, when you've made it through them, gotten through them, how they've brought wisdom and transformation into your life. You might even be able to think of some event or something that you've made it through and come out the other end, and how it has deepened your understanding and your wisdom. For me, I think it's one of the places I can see this is around self-judgment. I don't think I would have really and truly understood the power of unconditionally loving myself, and also unconditionally loving others, with actually out without going through the the difficulty of self judgment and and not that I would wish such harsh self judgment on someone else or myself, the kind of stuff that I've had to struggle with, but boy, what I've gotten out of it has been priceless i I wouldn't want it any other way actually. I don't think I would have really deeply understood the pain and also the possible liberation that can come out of dealing with judging oneself. So this is the embodiment of the yes of maybe beginning with no and ending with yes. It's, it's the movement from mere survival into authentic living.
And then I have to remember other things too when that's in place. A quality of self-compassion that just the simplicity that this is difficult. A kindness to myself. And that what comes with this recognizing, understanding that, for example, anger is here or restlessness and worry is here. That there's also a quality, if it's persistent, to investigate it. What's it like? What's it like? How does it, it feel in the body? Is it tightening? Is it loose, loosening? Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? This quality of curiosity, of investigation. I, I so appreciate, again, uh, some of Carol's language of, oh, anger is like this. It's just like this. Interesting. This is what it feels like. Fascinating. I want to get to know it. I want to understand it, to see it clearly. So I can recognize it accurately. So let's see if we can move on a little bit with the fourth foundation here of mindfulness of what the Buddha's uh, sharing with us. As I mentioned here, there being sense desire in, in them, a practitioner understands there is sense desire in me. Or there being no sense desire in me or in them, a practitioner understands there is no sense desire in me. I find this a a very important aspect of the practice. Can you notice the times when the hindrances are absent? Probably every single day that you're here, there are going to be moments upon moments when the hindrances are not arising. Can you recognize that accurately to notice that? I actually discovered in my, in my meditation practice that it often that is a more challenging task than to notice the hindrances. Because when things are going easy, my mind can check out. But there might be other states of mind there that are not hindrances. There might be a quality of calmness, a subtle joy, a quality of mindfulness or concentration, the mental state of investigation, a collected mind, a settled mind. Can you notice those and savor them, abide in them? Not with grasping or hoping that they're going to stay there, but to notice them accurately, to see the wholesomeness of those. They need your kind attention for them to grow. This is an important aspect of the practice around the the five hindrances. Let's, let's move ahead and actually, actually I'm going to skip a phrase and then come back to it because I want to do this a little bit out of order. So also what's understood around the five hindrances um, as, as a fourth foundation of, of mindfulness is the Buddha says is a practitioner understands how there comes to be the abandoning of a risen ill will or how there comes to be the abandoning of a risen doubt. So in other words, how does the abandonment of these arising or these present difficult states of mind, how do, how do they, they uh, disintegrate or dissipate? 
And it's simply what I've gone over. It's simply recognizing accurately. So I want to point out, it's very interesting, the language here. It's, it's how there comes to be the abandoning. And what I realized, what I appreciate about this language is that my job is not to abandon. Who does the abandoning? Wisdom does the abandoning. Again, I feel like I'm just up here repeating Carol's talk last night. She, she gave us our jobs. Abandoning was not one of the jobs. You just need to recognize what's going on. And when recognize, and recognizing is accurate and that happens again and again and again, wisdom come in, comes in and does its job and then that hindrance gets abandoned. The whole scene gets really bad when I start to step out of my job description. <laughs> Have you ever done that in a job? <laughs> it's, it's really bad. It's the same thing on, on retreat. You don't need to take on something else in your job description. You need to have the faith and trust in this path to see that all you need to do is to show up for your experience again and again and again, and abandoning will happen. So abandoning is not about pushing it away or, or aversion. It's not ignoring that it's there. It's also not indulging those states. Just the simple recognition. And also what's important to remember, when I'm engaged in recognizing accurately, it doesn't mean that abandoning is going to come immediately. So wisdom has its own pace, its own rhythm. And I have no idea what that is. I just have to have the faith that if I put forth this condition, it will do its work. And then there's these last two phrases that are found within this fourth foundation of, of mindfulness around the hindrances. And there are these two. And the practitioner also understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sense desire, for example. Or a practitioner also understand, understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen ill will. And a practitioner also understands how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sense desire. To tell you the truth, I find that language incredibly confusing. <laughs> so I always need to slow down with it. So let's see if we can slow down with it and, and, and understand this in terms of what you're doing here on retreat. So how there comes to be, to understand how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sense desire. So in other words, how do you come to understand the conditions that give rise to these hindrances? And again, it's this simple thing. This is what I love about giving this talk. I only have to remember one phrase, which is really good for my memory. It's just to recognize accurately. Because also what comes with this is I begin to see the dynamic of suffering. I don't need to stop and say, okay, let me analyze this. Let me figure out what's going on. I just need to show up for experience because what gets, starts to become clear is, is actually what Greg was talking about the other night around Vedana, around feeling tone. Oh, interesting. 
aversion arises because there's some unpleasant experience. There's an unpleasant sight, an unpleasant sound, an unpleasant thought. And then the conditions around that that give rise to this severe aversion is the reactivity. And you have those conditions come together, and voila, you have a hindrance. Wow, now I get this. And not so much in my head, I get it in my bones. And when I get it in my bones, the mind naturally is going to let go because it gets it. Not because it intellectually understands it, because you get it in your body. It reminds me of, of a, a story that Paul Breider um, once shared. Paul Breider was, uh, used to be a, a monk under Ajahn Chah. And this was after Paul Breider had disrobed and he was, I think he was somewhere in the States and Ajahn Chah had come to give some talks and I think Paul was setting up the, uh, the microphone or some electrical equipment and Ajahn Chah was sitting there as they were getting ready for this Dharma talk and something went wrong with the wiring and he was holding the wiring and he got shocked and he immediately let go. And Ajahn Chah said, just like that, that's, that's practice. <laughs> Right? You get it. You get it so immediately what, what this, this mind state is about. You get what the wires are immediately and you just let go. You don't have to think about it. It's just so clear. The mind and the heart become so clear about these states of mind that they don't, they don't get as entangled in them. And you might have noticed we don't get there through thinking about it. We get through this through accurately recognizing what's going on again and again and again. That's enough for the hindrances. It's, I, I want to acknowledge this is a general approach to them. There are some specifics around them, but I think these give us a, a beginning. So in, in light of this, I, I just want to say if, if these hindrances are arising strongly every day of your retreat, in some ways I want to say amen. <laughs> a deep bow to you. Because I, I, I do believe in the deepest part of my heart that it does, it does transform us and it transforms our world and our communities in a very important and significant way. So may the hindrances that arise in your practice be the gateway to liberation for the liberation of all beings. Let's, let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.